evening to Isaiah 44 for our scripture reading. Isaiah 44. We read this chapter in connection with Lord's Day 35, which speaks of the second commandment. And the second command is, is worded, Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. We turn now to Isaiah chapter 44, and we hear the inspired, infallible word of God. Yet now hear, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel whom I have chosen. Thus saith the Lord that made thee, and form thee from the womb, which will help thee. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, and thou Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. For I will pour water upon him that is thirsty, and floods upon the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon thy seed, and my blessing upon thine offspring. And they shall spring up as among the grass, as willows by the water courses. One shall say, I am the Lord's, and another shall call himself by the name of Jacob, and another shall subscribe with his hand unto the Lord, and surname himself by the name of Israel. Thus saith the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, and I am the last, and beside me there is no God. And who as I shall call? And shall declare it, and set it in order for me, since I appointed the ancient people. And the things that are coming, and shall come, let them show unto them. Fear ye not, neither be afraid. Have not I told thee from that time, and have declared it? Ye even are my witnesses. Is there a God beside me? Yea, there is no God. I know not any. They that make a graven image are all of them vanity, and their delectable things shall not profit. And they are their own witnesses. They see not nor know that they may be ashamed. Who hath formed a God or molten a graven image that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his fellows shall be ashamed, and the workmen, they are of men. Let them all be gathered together. Let them stand up. Yet they shall fear, and they shall be ashamed together. The smith with the tongs both worketh in the coals, and fashion it with hammers, and worketh it with the strength of his arms. Yea, he is hungry, and his strength faileth. He drinketh no water, and is faint. The carpenter stretcheth out his rule, he marketh it out with a line, he fitteth it with planes, and he marketh it out with a compass, and maketh it after the figure of a man, according to the beauty of a man, that it may remain in the house. He heweth him down cedars, and taketh the cypress and the oak, which he strengtheneth for himself among the trees of the forest. He planteth an ash, 
and the rain doth nourish it. Then shall it be for a man to burn, for he will take thereof and warm himself. Yea, he kindleth it, and baketh bread. Yea, he maketh a god, and worshipeth it. He maketh it a graven image, and falleth down thereto. He burneth part thereof in the fire, with part thereof he eateth flesh. He roasteth roast, and is satisfied. Yea, he warmeth himself, and saith, Aha, I am warm, I have seen the fire. And the residue thereof he maketh a god, even his graven image. He falleth down unto it, and worshipeth it, and prayeth unto it, and saith, Deliver me, for thou art my God. They have not known, nor understood, for he hath shut their eyes, that they cannot see, and their hearts, that they cannot understand. And none considereth in his heart, neither is there knowledge nor understanding to say, I have burned part of it in the fire. Yea, also I have baked bread upon the coals thereof. I have roasted flesh and eaten it. And shall I make the residue thereof an abomination? Shall I fall down to the stock of a tree? He feedeth on ashes. A deceived heart hath turned him aside, that he cannot deliver his soul, nor say, Is there not a lie in my right hand? Remember these, O Jacob and Israel, for thou art my servant. I have formed thee. Thou art my servant, O Israel. Thou shalt not be forgotten of me. I have blotted out as a thick cloud thy transgressions, and as a cloud thy sins. Return unto me, for I have redeemed thee. Sing, O ye heavens, for the Lord hath done it. Shout, ye lower parts of the earth, Break forth into singing, ye mountains, O forest, and every tree therein. For the Lord hath redeemed Jacob and glorified himself in Israel. Thus saith the Lord, thy Redeemer, and he that formed thee from the womb, I am the Lord that maketh all things, that stretcheth forth the heavens alone, that spreadeth abroad the earth by myself, that frustrateth the tokens of the liars, and maketh diviners mad, that turneth wise men backward, and maketh their knowledge foolish, that confirmeth the word of his servant, and performeth the counsel of his messengers, that saith to Jerusalem, Thou shalt be inhabited, and to the cities of Judah ye shall be built, and I will raise up the decayed places thereof, that saith to the deep, be dry, and I will dry up thy rivers. That saith of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and shall perform all my pleasure, even saying to Jerusalem, thou shalt be built, and to the temple, thy foundation shall be laid. We read that far. May God bless the reading of his word to our hearts. As I stated, we read that in connection with Lord's Day 35, found in the back of our Psalters on page 21. We have question and answers 96, 97, and 98. Question 96. What doth God require in the second commandment? That we in no wise represent God by images 
nor worship him in any other way than he has commanded in his word. Are images then not at all to be made? God neither can nor may be represented by any means. But as to creatures, though they may be represented, yet God forbids to make or have any resemblance of them, either in order to worship them or to serve God by them. But may not images be tolerated in the churches as books to the laity? No, for we must not pretend to be wiser than God, who will have his people taught, not by dumb images, but by the lively preaching of his word. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, it's important to distinguish the second commandment from the first commandment. Some have a difficult time finding that distinction. The Roman Catholics combine the first and second commandments. And then, in order to keep the number ten, they divide the tenth commandment into two commandments. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house, and thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. When they talk about the commandments then, they're always a commandment behind making it complicated for us to follow along. But for them, then the fifth commandment would be, thou shalt not kill the sixth commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery, and so on. Now immediately we understand that as far-fetched. There is a distinction to be made between the first and the second commandment. We also understand from Deuteronomy 5 and Exodus 20 that one cannot with certainty divide the tenth into two because in one The one aspect is put first, the other second. And so there would be endless wrangling and dispute over which is the ninth and which is the tenth commandment. Clearly, God's intention is to demonstrate there is no other God besides me. And now in the second commandment, to insist, we may not make representation of God and we may not worship God through such representation. So that what is the difference, significance here? The positive command of the first commandment was love the Lord thy God as the one only true God and grow in your knowledge of him. And we heard that admonition last week. The positive admonition now of the second commandment is worship him in the way that he has prescribed in his word. So the first commandment, the object of worship, God alone, The second commandment, the manner in which he's to be worshipped in connection with his word. And so we look at the second commandment, noting the basic principle, the prohibition, and the demand. We're going to try to use that same general outline for all of the different commandments in order to keep them comparable one with another. So what is the basic principle then of the second commandment? God is infinitely glorious and God is exalted above everything. As the infinite glorious God, he's spiritual. He's known by his attributes. We can't see God. We can't know God based on physical characteristics. It's his attributes. And how do we know God? on the basis of the revelation of his word. And so we study the word in order to find out who is God. And we know God by his names. His names reveal his greatness and his glory. 
And a study of God's names is a fascinating study in Scripture. Almighty, eternal, the I am that I am, Father, Lord of hosts. Our children know that those names of God set God apart. They make it so that God cannot be compared to the creature. He stands altogether separate in a whole different category of his own. He is the eternal one. He is the one who is independent. And then we have all of the attributes of God that we would refer to as the incommunicable. Some attributes God communicates with us. Love, mercy, grace. Other attributes belong only to God. And it's especially this commandment that lays out that important distinction. Jehovah God is God. And therefore, one cannot represent him in any other way. He's transcendent. That is, he's above everything that's earthly. He is independent. He's not dependent upon anything of this world. We're all dependent. Every creature is dependent. Every aspect of this creation is dependent upon something, but not Jehovah. He is the independent one. He's omnipotent, all-powerful. He's omnipresent. He's able to be everywhere present as the almighty living God. He's immutable. That is, he's unchangeable as to his essence with regard to his being, his actions. He's one spiritual being. And so how do we know God? We know God from his word and from the revelation he gives us. The Bible is that revelation. And so our worship of God needs to be always centered around then the word. Jesus is ultimately the revelation of God. We will see, Jesus, we will see God through Jesus. And Jesus Christ is the one sent by God to reveal God's love, God's faithfulness, God's goodness, God's mercy, so that through Jesus Christ, we know God in all of his beauty and all of his glory. And as God reveals himself to us in Christ, he gives us also to understand in the creation about us the greatness of his grandeur as the whole creation then unfolds as a marvelous tapestry setting forth the greatness of the glory and the majesty of this God who is our God. As God, again, he's spirit. That is, he's invisible. So that no idol can be made of him. No one knows what he looks like. He has no distinctive physical presence. And so there is no possibility in any way to represent him with earthly things. And any attempt to take an earthly thing to represent him limits him. Isaiah here is speaking of the travesty by which men seek to take a piece of wood and they carve it and they make it into an idol and now they bow and worship it. And they can carry that idol around. They can limit that idol so that now they are superior to the idol. They are superior to their God. And God sets forth, no, I am Jehovah. I am Almighty God. Setting forth the greatness of His glory. I am the one who created all things. I made you from the womb. I'm not a piece of wood. I can't be limited in any way. Now this truth that God is spirit is taught throughout the Bible. Deuteronomy 4.12 And the Lord spake unto you, out of the midst of the fire, ye heard the voice of the words, but ye saw no similitude, only heard ye a voice. 
Again and again, God revealed himself with a voice. But there was nothing that they could see. It was God powerfully portraying his will. John 1.18, no man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. 1 Timothy 1.17, now unto the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And then John 4.24, God is spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Those passages serve as the basis, the foundation of the second commandment. God and all of his perfections cannot be seen. There's no possibility of limiting them to something that's earthly. And so it's impossible to make an image, a picture of something that's invisible. As to his very essence, he's spiritual. And so that means negatively, God has nothing material. He can't be limited as to his form or as to his extent. Now the Bible talks, we know, about God seeing, God having eyes, having arms, his right hand. But all of those we understand to be expressions that merely are figures of speech. We call them anthropomorphisms. They're helping us try to understand God and his glory. And so that they try to portray God then from our perspective. And we understand what it is to have a right hand. We understand what it is to have to eyes. But we understand also God as a spiritual being doesn't have any of those physical properties. Positively then, we say about God, he is his attributes. God is eternity, immortal. He is love, mercy, compassion, all of the various attributes. Now that's different from us. Our physical attributes have their substance in and are limited by the substance of which we are made, our bodies. All creatures have their virtues by virtue of their created substance. Eyes, the color of their hair, how they're built, whether they're medium built, whether they're more burly. God, however, we can't speak of in any kind of physical manner. God is pure spiritual being. And that's the confession that the scriptures bring us to. We know him by his word. And as a pure spiritual being, all of his attributes then are spiritual as well. He is light, he's life, he's glory. It is impossible then to represent this spiritual being in any way earthly. And that's the prohibition now of the second commandment. Image worship is prohibited. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything in heaven or anything on earth or anything in the water under the earth. Nor may we bow ourselves down to them to worship them. To worship or represent our spiritual God with an earthly image is to make a lie about God. And to worship now that lie. And that's the point that Isaiah here, by the inspiration of God, is driving home to the Israelites. You are living a lie by 
worshiping images. You are not living according to the truth. The image worshiper depicts God as a changeable creature, one who was a stump and now has become a person carved out of the stump. The image worshiper depicts God as dependent on the human. It was the human that determined what God would look like. It was the human that determined how big he would be. So that the image worshiper now can carry around his God as he pleases. His God is dependent on him rather than he being dependent upon God. Now the difference between the first and second commandment again then is worshiping Jehovah through an image or worshiping the image itself as God. The pagan religions of our day take another God, Buddha, other gods, and they worship them in the place of God. That would be a violation of the first commandment. The second commandment is violated when one attempts to worship God through an idol, through a creature. And that's the fault of Israel during the time of Jeroboam and was the fault throughout the history of Israel. They attempted to worship God through the image that they constructed. Now, in time, violation of the Second commandment always became violation of the first. And we can understand that. If you're worshiping supposedly God through this golden calf, pretty soon your children are coming with you and you're telling them, no, we're worshiping Jehovah. And they're saying, who is Jehovah? And you tell them he's the God that created everything. He's the God that is everlasting and eternal. Pretty soon the children see the calf and they say, that's our God. They're not worshiping Jehovah through the calf. They begin to worship now the calf. Israel initially did not intend to make a different God. They wanted to worship the God that had brought them out of the land of Egypt, the God that was preserving and keeping them. But they wanted him in a form that they could see, a form that was concrete, that they could touch. And so they took the glory, the honor of the invisible God, and they brought it down into a creature. Later, Jeroboam expressed the same when he built the golden calves in Dan and Bethel. He told the people, worship them. Instead of going back to the temple, you don't need to go to the temple in Jerusalem to worship God. You can worship God here through these golden calves. And again, those who violated the second commandment then by worshiping God through an image eventually replaced that image with God. And they became guilty of another God. Violation of the first commandment. And that history repeats itself. Sin develops in generations. What begins with one sin develops into other sins. And eventually those who begin to worship images become guilty of outright violation of the first commandment. Replacing God now with another. Habakkuk 2 in verses 18 and 19 states, what profiteth the graven image that the maker thereof hath graven it? The molten image and a teacher of lies that the make of his works trusteth therein to make dumb idols? Woe unto him that saith to the wood, Awake! 
to the dumb stone, Arise, it shall teach. Behold, it is laid over with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in the midst of it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. The Lord is in his holy temple. It's before him that we bow alone. Now we realize images of God can be made in many different ways than are laid out here in Isaiah 44. In Isaiah 44, verse 20, the foolishness of the idolater is exposed. He feeds on ashes. A deceived heart hath turned him aside that he cannot deliver his soul nor say, is there not a lie in my right hand? But similarly, one who now takes his own idea about God and now transfers it into an image. Now the Roman Catholic Church is the outstanding group guilty of such violation of the second commandment, teaching that God is adored and worshipped through images. Just quoting from their Council of Trent. The Council of Trent would be their, so to speak, confessions that they are bound by. This chapter is entitled The Invocation, Veneration, and Relics of Saints and on sacred images. And we read this. Moreover, that the images of Christ, of the Virgin Mother of God, and of the other saints are to be had and retained, particularly in temples, and that due honor and veneration are to be given them, not that any divinity or virtue is believed to be in them, on account of which they are to be worshipped, or that anything is to be asked of them, or that trust is to be reposed in images, as was done of old by the Gentiles, who placed their hope in idols. But because the honor which is shown them is referred to the prototypes, which those images represent, in such wise that by the images which we kiss, and before which we uncover the head and prostrate ourselves, we adore Christ, and we venerate the saints whose similitude they bear as by the decrees of councils and especially of the second synod of Nicaea has been defined against the opponents of images. So clearly trying to say we're not, we're not replacing God by them but we're merely bowing before them in order to worship the one that they represent. So that we're worshiping God through these images. And then going on. They insisted these images then are helpful, they're useful, they're to be included in the church because they're to be used for instruction. And the bishop shall carefully teach this, that by means of the history of the mysteries of our redemption, portrayed by paintings or other representations, the people is instructed and confirmed in the habit of remembering and continually revolving in mind the articles of faith. And so there we have that idea that the catechism condemns that this is a means to teach. We use these idols now because with them we can more effectively teach the people. Now in a broader sense, idolatry is committed whenever a people, including we, form a conception of God that's different than the revelation in Scripture. We noted the warning of that with regard to the first commandment last week. Similarly, the second commandment also poses a warning in that regard. 
we may not make of God someone whom he is not. That's making an idol out of God. When we worship God in a way that's contrary to the way that he instructs us, we then make an idol. Rather than worshiping him in spirit and in truth, we worship God by other activities. We worship God in a manner that we ourselves are going to determine and by which we then will give him praise. And so Catholics and Lutherans state all worship that's not forbidden by God in his word is allowed. And they leave the door open then to all kinds of diverse, varied forms of worship. And ultimately what happens then is their worship is not guided by the word. The word is not central in worship. But all kinds of other inventions of men are included into worship. Worship and prayers to Mary prayers to other saints, confession to the priest, paying money to get friends or relatives out of purgatory, sale of indulgences, all of these now become a part of their worship. And absurdities and heresies find an open door now to come into and to corrupt the church. That's will worship. Introducing worship that's according to the will of man. The question with regard to worship is not what's appealing to men. It's not how can we make the most money as a church, which tragically often becomes that which the Catholic Church is guilty of. The church wants a worship that's exciting, a worship that whips up emotions, a worship that serves and pursues man's will. That's not the worship that God ordains. And there's no blessing in that worship. It's idolatry. The way laid out in God's word is the way we are commanded to walk. Now one of the oldest arguments is that of teaching tools. And just to delve into that for a few moments. As the catechism makes that explicit in question 98. No, we must not pretend to be wiser than God who will have his people taught not by dumb images but by the lively preaching of the word. Increasingly churches and Sunday schools insist that We need pictures of Jesus. We need pictures in order to teach. And that these pictures are going to be more effective for our instruction than us just talking about Jesus and trying to tell the children about Jesus. What becomes the problem? The children now walk away with a false impression of who Jesus is. We don't know what Jesus looked like. We don't have any idea what the other Bible characters looked like. And now we're putting pictures in their mind. Every picture of Jesus also only displays a part of Jesus. Jesus was human and divine. The best picture is only going to portray him as a human. Whereas it was evident coming into contact with Jesus throughout his ministry that he was not just a man. He was God. And so Jesus being portrayed then by a picture does an injustice to the divinity of God as expressed in Christ, if not even an outright denial. And now Jesus is portrayed as just a man, a nice man, a loving man. We need to hear Christ through his preaching, through his word, the scriptures. The only pictures that we have are those that are authorized by the Bible. John Calvin spoke of the fact that he saw two beautiful pictures that the Bible gives us concerning Christ. The picture of Jesus that's portrayed in the Lord's Supper 
and the picture of Jesus that's portrayed in baptism. The picture of our Lord breaking His body, pouring out His own blood for the sake of His people. The picture of our Lord sacrificing Himself so that His blood is sprinkled as the only possible atonement for sin. In those ways, we see the beauty, the wonder of our Lord. Anything else is unauthorized. It's idolatry. God desires that we know Him through the revelation of His Word, not through pictures. And notice the catechism's emphasis on the lively preaching of the Word. It's especially through the preaching that God in all of His glory, that Jesus Christ, in all of his work as Savior is made known. And by faith we lay hold upon that glorious truth. God desires that we sit down with our children and we teach them. We open the scriptures and we teach them from the Bible. The Bible is not a picture book like so many other books that our children have. It's different. Deliberately. We can't look at pictures that depict Jesus suffering on the cross. Pictures that would depict what Jesus did for his people. We talk to them. We explain it to them. And we teach them God, his glory, and Jesus Christ. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that all pictures are wrong. We may have pictures of ourselves, of our children, our homes. We may have pictures of churches, of praying hands, all kinds of different things. But those pictures, those images have their proper place. We don't use them in worship. And we don't worship them. As teachers, as parents, we make use of maps. We make use of means, concrete things that we can use to teach our children. Show them the Sea of Galilee. Show them an outline of the temple and give them a visual of the altar and different things that we're aware of. These can be used for the glory and for the honor of God. But God forbids images of God or Jesus in the instruction and teaching of our children. I fear too often we fall into that temptation, do we not? Rather than sitting down with our children and telling them the stories from the Bible, we resort to graphic picture books, children's Bibles that are filled with pictures, videos maybe that for the most part are portraying things then implanting in their mind things that simply are not true cannot be confirmed. We don't know what Noah looked like. We don't know what Joshua looked like. We don't know what Moses looked like. And we don't need to. And our children don't need to have pictures inscribed in their minds of these individuals. The emphasis is not on what they look like. It's what do they do. And that's what we want to explain. That's what we want to delve into the scriptures in order to teach our children. What did they do? How did they point to Christ? How did they in their walk and in their conduct, manifest that type that God ordained that would direct us to the Lord and to our Savior. Pictures become a distraction not only, but they become a lie. And every book, every video is going to be different based on the artist's conception. And so the catechism says, no, don't pretend to be wiser than God. God didn't give you any pictures. And he did that deliberately because what you need is not pictures. What you need is his word and the lively preaching of that word by which we and our children are taught. Not dumb images 
Now the catechism warns us in connection with the second commandment that unacceptable worship of God is threatened with terrible judgment. The second commandment includes that judgment. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. God is a jealous God, and God will visit the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generations of them that hate him. Now, God's jealousy is rooted in his love. Because God loves himself and he loves his glory, he's jealous then of anything that would rob himself of that or would direct attention to something else. That's different from our own jealousy. When we're jealous, typically the idea is that we want something that someone else has and we have a desire for it. And our jealousy then is a sinful jealousy. Not so with regard to God. God is jealous of his own glory. And he will never allow it to be trampled underfoot or given to another. Iniquity is visited then. Now, not as though God punishes righteous children for the sins of their parents. That's not the idea here. The idea, rather, is this. Consequences of sins run through generations. The Bible teaches that what a father does, the children also will imitate. God never punishes innocent children for the sins of their parents. Ezekiel 18, verses 14 through 17 state, He shall not die for the iniquity of his father. He shall surely live. That one will not die because of the iniquity of his father. He'll die because of his own iniquity. But what happens? When the parents are straying from the proper worship of God, then their idolatry, their false worship, is carried on by another generation. And as we pointed out, the parents may have been believing in their heart that they were worshiping Jehovah through that image. But now the children only see the image. And they're worshiping the image as God. And that sin will increasingly develop as God then gives them over to that foolishness. God punishes, we say, sin with sin. So that those who... Engage in sin. God gives them over to it. Thankful we are for the wondrous grace of God by which for his children, he stops us. He corrects us. He brings us to repentance. But with regard to the wicked, not so. God gives them over and their sins just continue to develop and increase until the cup of iniquity is filled. The result then is that the generations become cut off then from the blessedness of the covenant. Now, God will never punish one of his elect. Should there be an exception, perhaps, in those generations? All the punishment of God's elect is poured out on Christ. He bore our punishment. And with his stripes, we are healed. But God will pluck a brand here, a brand there, out of the fire. And God will show to them the everlasting mercy and the grace of his covenant. And will continue that covenant then in their generations according to his good pleasure. Those who practice idolatry and will worship, that is worshiping God according to their own will, without repentance, will be visited with the wrath of God. 
And that's the testimony of the scriptures. That's the testimony here of Isaiah in Isaiah 44. Hear, O Jacob, turn, repent, turn from your sin. And if you fail to do so, judgment. Sons who follow in the footsteps of their fathers continue in that punishment. That's a frightening thing. It causes our hearts to bleed for those who are raised in idolatry. And it motivates us to witness to them. We see the horror of their worship. And we want to do everything we can to talk with them and to speak with them about the wondrous mercies of God, about Jehovah as He's revealed in His Word. To warn them concerning the destruction that accompanies false worship. And for ourselves, constantly examining my own heart, my own life. Am I walking in a manner that reflects my worship of God rightly? Now this doesn't imply that God's jealousy is limited to the second commandment. It's striking that it's laid out here in the second commandment, but in no way limited. Image worship especially attacks the glory of God. And image worship denies His infinite majesty. Image worship is an attempt to pull God down and to make it so that man is Lord rather than God, exalting the creature above the Creator. And the consequences of image worship for the generations are so serious that it's laid out here. The consequences of other sins also are serious in their generations, but this more so from other commandments. When worship of God turns from the preaching of the word when it begins to follow after now all kinds of other practices then apart from the grace of God those generations become further and further removed from Jehovah and from his glory but what is the demand here nor worship him in any other way than he has commanded in his word that's the positive Requirement that God sets before us, before which we stand. When you worship me, God says, worship me in connection with my word. And beloved, we're humbled. What that requires of us, as we saw with the first commandment, we need to know the word of God. We need to be students of the word. And our desire is to know God in order that we know how he is to be honored and glorified. And that worship then is spiritual. As a spirit, God is not to be worshipped by idols. He's to be worshipped in a manner that involves the spirit. Increasingly in our day, a plethora of rituals are being inserted back into worship. Worshipping God with all kinds of things and throwing all kinds of things into worship. God says, don't worship me with things. Worship me in a spiritual way. You don't need things you can feel, things that you can touch, things that you can see. You need the lively preaching of the word. Again, not by dumb images, but by the lively preaching of his word. The effect of almost every form of modern worship is to undermine or marginalize the word. The preaching of the word gets less and less attention, less and less time, until pretty soon it can be driven altogether out of worship. God instructs us to make sure that we keep the preaching of the word central in worship. And the admonition then is that we heed that word. 
We don't just show up two times a Sunday, but that word lives in our hearts. That word lives in our souls, and we desire now to conform our lives according to God and according to his word. Now, in determining the elements of worship then, the decision isn't men, man's, it's of God. God is first, and that's always the principle that has to rule our lives, God first. What does God say about this? What does God say about that? And we subject then our worship to God and to his will. Now, while the idea that God regulates scripture is scriptural, or worship, that God regulates worship is scriptural and it's confessional, there have been all kinds of different application of that principle. And that principle has been abused significantly and created so many divisions. One only has to look at the Presbyterian churches and see all the divisions and the divisiveness over the application of this principle. But it also affects us and it affects Reformed churches in our day. People are quick to jump on their own idea then and now try to bring Scripture in to try to support what they think and what they want with regard to worship rather than using God's Word to describe and define the manner in which God is to be worshipped. We understand the differences between elements and circumstances. Difficult it is sometimes to determine where that distinction lies but we understand that while this principle applies to the elements God gives freedom and liberty to the church with regard to the circumstances of her worship but there are those who take this biblical principle now and try to find a Bible text then for everything that goes into the worship service the mistake of that principle is such that one can then reach for straws and one can find all kinds of different things and it involves endless wrangling rather than the worship now being spirit and in truth it becomes legalistic and it becomes caught up in all kinds of struggles and just to mention a few musical accompaniment becomes disputed now with some insisting singing with musical accompaniment that introduces heresy into the worship service. Where do you find in the New Testament any indication that we must have or may have musical accompaniment with our singing? The issue becomes with the forms that we use for baptism in the Lord's Supper. Where in the Bible do you find proof that we can use forms for baptism, for the Lord's Supper? How can we prove that we can use prayers that are pre-written? May we not just have spirit-filled prayers or may we have prayers that are written ahead of time. It's disputed whether music can be played, for instance, during the offertory. Where is that in the Bible? And so disputes take place here. Advocates begin also at times to condemn Reformed churches for observing Good Friday, Ascension Day, Pentecost, Christmas, with special worship services saying that's not required by scripture therefore it's forbidden you may not do that now it's interesting that early on after the reformation the second helvetic confession included reference to special services insisting that while we must worship on sunday the church has highly the liberty also to hold special services on other occasions and in geneva and calvin's day Worship services were held every single day. 
There are those who insist only the 150 psalms may be sung. And any introduction then of any other song, whether it be the song of Mary, song of Zacharias, the Lord's Prayer, the doxology, praise God, is bringing heresy into the worship. Our churches hold to Article 69 of our church order, which allows for the 150 psalms along with other hymns that are listed. Now, in the early 1960s, there was an attempt to try to open our singing to more hymns that were faithful versifications of Scripture. But in the 60s, it ended up that that was not approved as a change to the church order. In 2000, there was an attempt to limit it more and to say, let's just put a period after 150 psalms. That also was not adopted. The psalms are the songbook that God gives to his church that centers on God and on his glory. But through the ages, the Reformed churches have never held exclusively to the psalms. And then one gets caught up in all kinds of dispution over that. Can we sing versifications of the psalms? Do we have to go back to the Psalter and sing it straight out of, or out of the Bible and sing it straight out of the Bible? But never, interestingly, has the singing of the psalms been defended in Reformed churches on the ground of the regulative principle. Practical dis- arguments generally have been given. The second commandment regulates the elements and the content of our worship. And much wisdom is required to know where is the distinction? Where is the liberty? How is it to be applied in the way that gives God the glory and gives God the honor? Understanding the church has liberty with regard to the circumstances, what the ministers may wear, whether we stand or sit to pray, how the wine and the bread are distributed in the Lord's Supper, whether the singing is accompanied or not, what time we meet, how many times we worship on a Sunday, whether in addition to Sunday we worship on other occasions, how the offerings are collected, what offerings are collected, the use of forms, the use of form prayers. All of these must be wisely discerned by the church in order to determine, does this fit with the centrality of the word and worship? God reveals the manner in which he's to be worshipped in spirit. And God shows us then that that worship needs to be guided by that principle. How would God have us to glorify and honor him? And primary must be the preaching and everything else secondary to the preaching. There's the preaching. There's singing. There's prayers that are offered. There's the reading of God's word. There's confession of faith. There's the reading of the law. All of these elements included. And we have a small pamphlet that's in the back that has to do with questions about Protestant reform worship services that tries to give answers to some of those, demonstrating why do we do this the way that we do. It's because we're seeking to be faithful to God and to his word. God is spirit, and God must be worshipped in spirit and in truth. And the outward actions mean little. We can get caught up in the fact that we show up, we're here regularly, but are we worshiping God? Are we doing so from hearts that are filled with thanksgiving? Hearts that are filled with praise? Are we doing it in a manner that reflects our sacrifice to the living God? To obey, remember, is better than sacrifice and to hearken than the fat of rams. 1 Samuel 15, 22 and 23. 
God requires of us that we offer ourselves as living sacrifices to the Lord. Recognizing what great things God has done for us, the wondrous salvation that is ours, and our desire now to glorify Him and to honor Him as He sets forth in His Word. Reverence, humility must characterize our worship. Not rising up in pride quickly over against others, but our worship, that by which we give Him the glory and we honor Him. A worship also that does not become formal, nor does it become characterized by endless change, but that we maintain that which gives him praise and honor, glorifying God in what we do. And beloved, that God-glorifying worship is that which receives the blessing of God. I will show mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. God loves his people for his own name's sake. God has chosen us in Jesus Christ. And he has revealed himself to us in Christ. And God is merciful to them that love him and keep his commandments. Because they are his children. They are the objects of his everlasting love and care. Mercy isn't common. It's not something general. It's particular. Limited to those who love him and keep his commandments. And it's only because of that mercy we know that we keep his commandments and that we desire to do so by his grace. God's mercy is the only thing that keeps us from idolatry. And so we search our hearts. We search and examine our worship. Are we worshiping in a manner that gives God glory? Is our worship characterized by the word? Am I submitting myself to the word of God as it's set forth through the lively preaching? Do I know the mercy by which I have been sealed through the death and resurrection of my Savior? All who love and fear Him and keep His commandments know His joy, His care for them, and His mercy. And not only that, in their generations. What a gracious God. I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I'm guilty of idolatry. I know that there's times when I do not come into the presence of God with the spirit that I ought. There's times when I make in my mind idols of God. I try to subject God to myself and to my own will. I don't worship God as I ought. I'm prone to sin, prone to stumble. I'm prone to show up and to think evil of those who are sitting around me. Rather than worshiping, the devil distracts me with all kinds of things. And how often do I not become dissatisfied even with the requirements of God regarding worship? I'm just going through the motions, perhaps. I maybe want to add my own ideas, add my own perspectives, and I become guilty then of will worship even to a degree. We pray for forgiveness, beloved, and we pray that God guide us and direct us in the way that we ought go. And for this we praise God. God has implanted within the hearts of his children a desire to worship him rightly. Remember, God has written his law in our hearts. And in the hearts of God's children, God's mercy abides. And it shines. And God shows forth his care for and his provision of his own. And God works in us that right spirit. 
He works in us that humility. And where he's worshipped, in accordance with his word, his blessing is evident. And we're humbled. We look back on our generations. We see God's hand guiding and directing us. We see the sacrifices fathers, grandfathers made for the sake of the truth. When they perceived that the worship was being corrupted, when they knew the need to reform that worship and to get back to the primacy of the word, thankful to God. And we pray for that same conviction where necessary, that God will give us grace and he will give us strength to stand for what's right in order that his name receive all the glory, that we and our children praise and magnify his name as he has set forth in his word. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, strengthen us and equip us. Turn our hearts away from pride, away from the pursuit of our own flesh and our own will. Give unto us to know the death of our Savior for our sins with respect to worship. And strengthen us that we might long to worship Thee from the heart, in spirit and in truth, as those who know the wonder of Thy everlasting love and delight in the things of Thy kingdom. And strengthen us then to magnify Thy name in worship. Prick us where we fail. Reform us where necessary. And grant that thy word might be central in all our lives. Amen.